Well, welcome to Harvest. If you're here and you are visiting this morning, if I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here. And thank you for the people tracking with us on, I think I always motion that way to the camera. Um, I don't know why I do that, but hi. Um, For the people online with us as well this morning, um, we miss you, we love you, but thank you for still uh, coming along with us during this time in this series. Um, I don't know what you're thinking of me now this morning based off those pictures, but hopefully that doesn't cloud uh, what we talk about this morning as we dive into peace and the advent of peace. Uh, I am sort of a fan of Christmas music. Like, it takes me a little while to really get into the Christmas spirit to where I'm like, yes, I can listen to Christmas music nonstop. Some of you um, love Christmas music and have been listening to it since, like, July in preparation. I only just started in the last, like, week or so. I was finally ready. And this Christmas song came on that caught my attention because of the theme of peace that we're diving into this morning. I'm not going to sing it because that would be weird, but here's how it starts. It says this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the bells are ringing peace on earth, like a choir they're singing peace on earth. In my heart I hear them peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Not your normal, like, chestnuts on an open fire and mistletoe kind of Christmas music. Um, but in this song, the writer is talking about, man, in Christmas time, there's kind of that, that hallmark idea of what Christmas is, that it's cheerful, that it's joyful, that we love the lights and the presents and the hope of snow and family coming in from out of town, and all those are good things. And even as we talk about peace this morning, that's something that clearly in the Christian Christmas story, there's this arrival of peace that we should look forward to, that we should delight in. But then as we look around and we search for peace on earth, maybe in the last couple years especially, we can ask that same question of can there really be peace? As we've seen a time filled with dissension, of chaos, of hurt, of sickness, of pain, we look to the world and say, can there truly be peace on earth now? Can there actually be a peace that lasts forever. I think in the last season, we have uh, had a heightened sense of a longing for wholeness, for restoration. There's, there's a sense of how broken things actually are, and things that are broken not just out there, but in here, in our hearts too. Brokenness upon brokenness has been exposed, and not just in this last season. This is way before the pandemic, right? Since, since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, all creation has been longing, has been groaning for wholeness, for restoration, for the brokenness to cease, and for peace to flood all of creation. 
And as we've, we're spending this time in Advent, uh, the four weeks kind of leading up to, but we're off just a week, so we're both leading up to Christmas, and then on Christmas we'll be spending um, time looking at the Advent, the arrival, uh, I've been thinking of Advent this way, the arrival and the waiting, like two theme words, the arrival of the Messiah, and then the waiting for the Messiah's arrival the second time. And with that, we're looking at a different theme, a different, uh, different element of that arrival each week, the arrival of hope with the Messiah, the arrival of peace, the arrival of love, the arrival of joy, but then also the waiting, the longing for love, peace, joy to flood and cover the earth, all of creation now and forevermore. I wonder when you think about peace, what comes to your mind? If you were to picture yourself in a place of peace or in a, in a place where things are peaceful, for some of us, it may be uh, going on a run and you get your headphones and you've got your podcast or you've got your special running playlist that is a little angsty maybe, or maybe it's worship music and you're nothing like me. Um, or maybe you go like old school, no headphones, like all natural, and you just want to like hear your feet against the path on Lacamas Trail, or you want to hear your breath in the cold. And there's something about being in, the, in nature that there's this sense of like, can finally exhale. Or for some of you, you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound peaceful at all, actually. Um, my idea of peace is spa day, and I want the cucumber slices. I want like this tranquil environment, and I want somebody working on the knots in my back that have been there since I was 18, right? Um, and uh, for some of us, that's a lot longer than others. Uh, but um, so for, uh, I didn't mean that as a diss. I'm so sorry. Um, the other, other idea of peace may be a rainy day with a book and a good cup of coffee or tea. For some of us, peace could look like a vacation, that's what we think of, or peace is kumbaya around a campfire. And while all those things I would say are good things, maybe some better than others, things that actually can feel helpful or can feel restorative, I think as we, if you were here and got to see the Bible Project, really kind of bring to light how the Bible defines peace it's different. It's, it's deeper than just going on a run or different, deeper than just simply a spa day. Some of those things can be us just trying to avoid our chaos or control our chaos. Where biblical peace is something much richer, much deeper. As the Bible Project defined it there, as they're trying to bring to light what Scripture is defining peace as, it's not simply the removal of conflict, but it's the restoration of something broken. It's wholeness. It's like harmony, things working together as they should. The picture of if you and I were in an argument together, peace isn't when you and I just decide, let's agree to disagree and go our separate ways, where the conflict kind of stops and ceases because we're no longer actively arguing, kind of this passive approach to peace, but true peace is not only do we work through it, but in harmony, our relationship moves forward together. That's the idea of biblical peace and the peace that we desperately need now and forevermore. In Scripture, we see this peace is most needed between people and their creator, God. And then from there, people to the rest of God's creation, primarily other people. 
And in this last season, I think, like I said, we've had this longing for peace, this longing that things aren't right, things need to be restored, things need to be made whole. And the good news is we are not the first people to have longed for peace before that there are generations of different tribes and different tongues that have cried out longing for peace, longing for shalom on earth. And this goes back to like when I said at the start of scripture, when sin first enters the world and things are broken, creation itself longing for peace, crying out for God to restore it to its natural state, the place of harmony, true fellowship, One of the things I love about scripture is that it is not afraid to show us just how dark and how broken things actually are. I know in my life and in my world, I like to pretend things aren't as dark or as broken as they are in me, but scripture's not afraid to go there. Scripture's not afraid to put things plainly, like this is as bad as it gets. And Greg read Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, which is a familiar Christmas passage um, this morning. But I want to back up just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 8. So if you would uh, go there with me in your Bibles, if you have them this morning, Isaiah chapter 8, starting at verse 20. And I'm only going to give just some minimal context here. We just worked through the book of Isaiah recently as a church. So maybe even as we look at this text, there's just new meaning and like um, some coloring uh, of the the picture picture that's filled in there that we didn't have before when we came across this Christmas passage. But we remember in Isaiah what's happening is that God is letting his people know you are guilty and you will be judged because you're guilty. And what they're guilty of is that they have turned from the Lord. They've turned from seeking God. They've turned from his ways and they're following after whatever their heart desires. They're following after the other nations and just doing what seems best to them and right to them. And in that, they have totally walked away from God's law, from God's ways. And they are still trying to do this weird like, ooh, I like this about God, but here's this thing that that I like too. And trying to add it together and create their own new sense of identity apart from God. And God is saying, for that, you have brought chaos, you are in brokenness, you are in darkness, and you will be judged for this. And in chapter 8, where we pick up, it's saying that Israel will be judged. And during that time of judgment, man, look to the Lord's instruction in this. Like, maybe stop looking to the nation, stop looking to yourself, and actually remember God's instruction. But if you don't, this is what's going to happen Verse 20 of chapter 8. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. When they will look toward, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. They will be thrust into utter darkness. Here is one of those moments in scripture that's like, oh, like that is just broken. That is dark. That is awful. And even the readers could be like, is this hopeless then? Like, is this state hopeless for those who have turned from the Lord's instruction? And it's there, it's then, in this moment, in this time, that then we get Isaiah 9. The promise of God sending a child. The promise of a son. That there will be a light in the darkness. 
And Greg read that passage, and there's so much in that passage that we could dive into, but specifically with our theme of peace this morning, I want us to look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That in a time for God's people that is dark, that is gloomy, that is so broken, we also see in Scripture over and over again, those are the times where God shows up and says, I will continue to be faithful to my promise to my people, that I will be the one who brings restoration to the brokenness. As dark and as awful and as chaotic as things can get, God continues to be who he says he is, to be faithful to a broken people and promising wholeness and restoration. And here we see that it is going to be through this child that will be the light in the darkness, this one who will bring true peace. In the section where it's listing the different titles that this child will have, one of those is the Prince of Peace. And I was thinking about how this is like uh, showing that his kingdom is going to be a kingdom that truly administers true peace and true shalom, true wholeness, true restoration in all of creation. We know people that have titles and positions of authority, right? The president of the United States, the queen of England, the mayor of Camus. And it starts with their place of authority, and then it shows kind of the area that they govern, the boundaries that they have. But here, when Jesus has the title prince, his authority, what he has authority over has no boundary, but it is peace itself, shalom itself, restoration and wholeness. And we see that that has no end, that there's no boundary that can hold back his peace, that it spreads not only into all of the earth, but into the cosmos, into all of creation, bringing wholeness and restoration that all of creation longs for. It's not set aside for one land or one place or one person, but that's how far Jesus's peace spreads, that he has all authority over over bringing restoration to brokenness. And with Jesus' peace, we see the arrival of it now in his birth, but we also see the promise of it forever in his second coming. In verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 9, it talks about how Jesus will win this peace for his people forever. And one of the ways he will do that is he will make an end to all evil, that he will do away with all wickedness, with all those who have oppressed God's people With all the ones who are wicked, he will bring true justice to the land. There will be no more war. There will be no more battle. There will be no more fighting, no more strife. And in those sections, it talks about the things that were once used for war, for battle. Those things, all they're good for now is fuel for the fire. If you're here and you're students, some of you may, uh, on the last day of school, have like a ceremony with your homework 
that you've gotten back or your tests in that ceremony is that you burn them, right? You just throw them into the fire because you're like, there's no way I ever want to touch that again and this has no use anymore. Here, Jesus is saying armor, um, weapons, weapons of mass destruction, even the very boots that the soldiers wear, they don't have any use anymore in my kingdom that lasts forever because those things will no longer exist. All they're good for is fuel for the fire. Can you imagine a day like that? Can you imagine a day with that kind of peace where there's not rumors of nations building this new crazy weapon that we have to be ready for because maybe there's a chance that they'll attack us someday. There's no more needing to defend yourself because there's true harmony, not just with your neighbor, not just with other nations, but all of creation is restored to its right place. Recently, Kat and I have been reading to our son, Bennett, who's four months old on Tuesday. And uh, yeah, that's awesome. I love it. Um, and we've been reading to him the last couple months. And this, uh, so we, we have the books and like Bennett's here positioned to see the pictures. And it's one of the times he gets most talkative as he sees like the colors and hears our voice like change as we do different characters. And one of the books that I read to Bennett recently is On Beyond Zebra. I don't know if any of you have ever read that one before. It's old as a classic. I read it when I was a kid. And the premise of On Beyond Zebra, if you have not read it before, is there's this little kid, and he's like, I know everything because I know A to Z. And not just simply the alphabet, but then with the English language, I know everything because every word you could possibly think of comes from A to Z. So if I know A to Z, I know it all. Then there's this other kid, a little bit older, a little wiser, wiser maybe a little more crafty, who says, oh, you think you know everything because you know A to Z? There's actually a whole alphabet after Z that you have no idea about. And one of those letters is WUM, right? W-U-M. That's one of the letters in this alphabet. And you wouldn't even know then how to spell Wumbus without WUM, which is some weird mythical creature that Dr. Seuss would come up with. And the whole alphabet is that, like these crazy letters that you've never heard of before. And then there's all these crazy uh, reciprocal effects because of knowing this alphabet. And so actually there is no end to this alphabet and no end to knowing the depths of how far it goes. And that book made me think about in Isaiah 9 when it says there is no end to his peace. To his peace, there is no end. That right here and now, we can't even begin to comprehend the levels of right relationship, the levels of depth of peace that we will know and that we will experience in Jesus' perfected kingdom. There's things that we can only dream about. Our imaginations maybe just barely scratch the surface. It's like there's this whole other alphabet of peace that only Jesus knows and that he's going to bring into fruition when he returns again. And we will be in awe of understanding the depths of peace with God that we have and the peace with the rest of his creation. So in Isaiah, as people hear this news, this message that there will be a son, there will be a child who will come and bring this peace, they wait for that advent. They wait for that day, for this kingdom of peace to usher in. As we move further in scripture to another familiar Christmas time passage, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. 
in the New Testament where we see the proclamation of this arrival take place. And we know that this is a, um, a uh, miraculous proclamation of this child arriving into the world because it's not just a human like you or me announcing the arrival of this birth. It is angels. It is the heavenly host who are announcing to the world that this child has been born to us today and who they announce it to are shepherds. Let's look at this proclamation in verse 10 of chapter 2. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So church, I ask us again, can there be peace on earth? And what the angels would say, what scripture would tell us, through the arrival of this Messiah, of this Savior Jesus, yes. And if we were to read this, the Gospels and follow the God-man Jesus throughout his time here on earth, we would see that he continually is marked with shalom, marked with erene, marked with this restoration, this wholeness, to th- bringing wholeness to things that were once broken. Jesus comes with teaching and teaching that has authority on these matters where he commands people that follow him to love their enemy. Jesus brings healing to the sick, people with conditions that otherwise were hopeless. When Jesus enters in, when Jesus touches them, when Jesus speaks, all of a sudden the brokenness that they've known for their whole lives, restoration and wholeness is brought to it. Jesus even has the authority to cast out evil, to cast out demons, showing that he truly is the light in the darkness. But in all those things, in Jesus' teaching, in the miracles, in the authority, he's pointing to something that all people need. And it's Jesus pointing out that actually, for all humans at our core, we're all broken. At our core, we're all spiritually blind. At our core, we're all relationally in darkness when it comes to knowing and loving God and that peace on earth wouldn't simply come through a miracle of healing or casting out a demon or a good teaching, but it would come when peace was made between humans, between people and their creator, God. Because Jesus knew just how deeply broken we actually are the depths of sin and evil that we have delved in. And he knew how desperately we needed saving. And Romans 5.1 reflects on this as Paul looks back on Jesus winning that for us on the cross. It says, Paul writes this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through faith in Jesus, believing and taking hold of, following and trusting in that Jesus' death for us on the cross, when he takes on our sin and then also buries it into the grave, resurrects and then gives us new life now that lasts forever. When someone puts their faith in him and him alone, we're this really uh, Christian word, Bible word, justified through that faith. And I didn't have a good understanding of justified for a really long time because it was one of those Christian words that just kind of got tossed around. And we talked about it um, at youth groups maybe over a year ago, and Joel Richter taught on justified with our middle schoolers, and I thought he did such a good job of talking about using words like status and standing, that when we are justified by God, that means that our status has shifted and changed. Our standing with God is new, is made different. How God views us is totally changed. So no longer is our status with God simply broken, sinner, enemy, guilty. But through faith in Jesus, our status, how God views us, is redeemed, righteous, saved, holy. He views us as his children, his sons and daughters. And here Romans says, we have peace with God because of this new status, this new standing, how God views us. And I think in this time, in, in, in the world that we're living in, where how people view us, how we view each other, is forever shifting, forever changing, based off a post or based off something someone does or doesn't do. I think something that can bring us great peace as God's people is knowing that when I fail miserably, when I fall into sin, when I don't do the things that I long to do, as a believer, God's view of me is unchanging and unshifting. We have great peace in knowing that in a world that is forever shifting and changing, that if our foundation is in Christ, even at my lowest moment, if I am in him, his view of me does not change. My status with him is immovable. The status that God has given us has arrived now. We are justified in Christ, and it will go with us into eternity. It will last forever. The peace we have with God was won for us by our Prince of Peace, Jesus. And how he won that peace for us was through sacrifice. How he defeats sin and death is through his own blood. How he obtains that peace is through dying. And Romans 5, 6 through 10 go on to say this. I just love this passage because it it shows us where peace was won for us, where we were at with God when Jesus obtains this peace for us and what it produces in us as his people. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be reconciled to him through the death of his son? How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? 
when we were powerless, when we were ungodly, when we were deserving of wrath, when we were enemies of God, that is when Jesus lays down his life, sacrifices himself to obtain peace, to win peace for us with our God. And it's not simply just to end the conflict between God and humanity. But in that last verse, what it says is, is for, for one to take on the wrath that we were deserving, but then also to give us life in him so that the relationship with God might move forward with harmony. If you are here and uh, you have not placed your trust in Jesus, for one, uh, man, we are so glad that you are with us this morning. And also, I think it's super bold of you to show up to a place where there's a bunch of people that believe something that you're either sure that you don't believe or unsure, and maybe someone just drug you here. I don't know. But if you haven't listened to anything else that I've said until now, I really want you to hear this, is that we are all searching for peace. I spent a long time in my life uh, before I followed Jesus, searching for peace in all the wrong things. And it only led to shame. It only led to failure and to disappointment and to sadness and to more brokenness. And the peace that we all inherently long for, we don't know it often right away until God opens our eyes, but it's peace with God himself that we're craving. It's not a run. It's not a spa day. It's not even a really good cup of coffee, even so some, sometimes I think it is. It's peace with God, being right in his eyes and having our relationship with him brought back to restoration. That we need to accept that the only way to access this peace, to receive this peace, is through the crucified Messiah, through the one who was light in the darkness, his, his life laid down for ours, and then in turn, his resurrected life given to, to us. If you've been running after peace, and it's only led you to more brokenness, Jesus offer, offers you a peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that is truly eternal. It's only through the peace that God offers us is our brokenness restored, is his justice for our sin fulfilled, and our relationship with him moves forward in harmony. And the beautiful thing about our God and about the gospel and about his peace is that not only does he call us to be recipients of his peace, but he calls us to be givers of his peace in the rest of creation. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If you were with us during our time in the Sermon on the Mount, we remember that word blessed means flourishing, or it is the best way to live. It goes well with you if you live as a peacemaker. And one of the reasons for that here that Jesus lists is because it shows whose family you belong to. It shows the evidence of you being a son or daughter of God. 
In Romans 12, 16 through 18, Paul writes to to believers, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The picture that we get of God's peace expanding into the rest of all creation. One of the primary ways that God brings that to the rest of the world, the expanding of his kingdom of peace is through us, church. It's through his church being peacemakers in all of creation and giving God's peace to others. It's okay, it's my son. So how do we seek to live at peace with others in this time? What does it look like for us to be peacemakers in 2021? What does it look like for us, not simply just to try to end conflict with someone, but to strive for peace as the Bible illustrates, for a relationship that moves forward in restoration, bringing wholeness to the brokenness? And for starters, just to be uh, completely honest, before I can instruct us or to give ideas of how we might do that, I have to be real with myself at where I'm at. Because when I look in the mirror, I do not see the best peacemaker. I'm someone who I love just trying to resolve a problem quickly to move past it instead of trying to do the slow, hard work of repentance, reconciliation, and redemption. Uh, Still deep within my being, I am a people pleaser at heart, and thankfully Jesus is not done working on me in that. But you can ask my wife how many times when there's something off between us that I just want to solve it and get through it quickly because I hate that feeling of off and I just want to, to feel good again. I want to be liked by that other individual. And so I, I surpass listening. I surpass seeking to, to think through and reflect on all the ways that I hurt that person and why we got here because I just want things to be good again. I also love being understood more than I love understanding the individual. I have a lot of words, clearly, and I can use them often to try to explain away why the thing that I did to you that you thought hurt you so much, actually, here's all the reasons why it didn't hurt you, and it wasn't that bad, and actually, you're in the wrong. Crazy when you're a talker how that happens. I think that's an epidemic in our world right now. (laughs) Seeking to be understood instead of seeking to understand. Also, when I look in the mirror, I look at how quick I am to defend myself. uh, As Paul Tripp, a pastor, writes, the inner lawyer in me just rises. Let me give my defense for all the ways that you're wrong. Instead of listening instead of taking the rebuke and sitting in it, instead of receiving the correction, it always blows me away that Jesus, as he was led to the cross and he actually was innocent, that he was silent. I wonder if anybody else relates or if that's just what God's doing on me and I've got to do a lot of work with him after the sermon. We will always fail to share God's peace with others if we don't first recognize that everything in our flesh 
opposes true peace. And I'm no philosopher, but the more I've looked at peace, the more I've seen it displayed in Scripture, the more it seems that peace often requires sacrifice. And we see this most exemplified by Jesus on the cross. He, perfect, sinless, laying down his life for us who are guilty to make peace. And you could argue with me that uh, actually there are instances where peace, where shalom happens and sacrifice isn't required. And that totally could be true. Um, I've only been thinking about it for like two weeks. Um, But I would say at the very least that peace always requires self-denial. There is no situation of peace where two people are at odds or in conflict, where one says, my will be done, and the other says, my will be done, and somehow they move forward in harmony together. I think that's actually what we call war when that happens, (laughs) right? When Paul writes in Philippians 2, to consider others better than yourselves, taking on the very nature of our Savior. There's something about bringing restoration to brokenness that means us denying our flesh, denying self in pursuit of wholeness with someone else, even if we think we are desperately right. So in a time filled with dissension and chaos and anxiety, how can we as God's church be on the front lines when it comes to ushering in his peace on earth? Well, I think it starts with the day-to-day moments. I think that when we then go back to work or back to school, and there's that annoying coworker or student in our class, and they don't just annoy you, but there's a whole group of you in your office or in your class that they annoy, and it's really easy to make jokes or it's really easy to gossip. What biblical peace looks like in that scenario isn't simply passively just stepping out of those conversations and no longer making fun or no longer gossiping, but what biblical peace looks like is inviting them over for dinner. What biblical peace looks like is inviting them to your table is getting a cup of coffee with them and actually seeking to build a relationship with that individual. During the holidays, we need a lot of biblical peace because there's people, there's family that come in from out of town and you gather together and this family member and you don't see eye to eye about anything that is going on in our world and that has just been heightened more and more in the last couple years. Biblical peace in that scenario doesn't simply mean avoiding all those conversations and hot topics with them. That may be a good thing. Biblical peace looks like engaging them intentionally to still build relationship with that individual, to hear and check in how their heart is actually doing in all of this. And even if they go there and want to just bring up those hot topics, you seek to understand them and listen instead of being understood. Biblical peace means not only making it our goal not to be racist, but to listen and to hear from those of other ethnicities who have experienced prejudice and racism. 
Biblical peace means sitting down with the brother or sister that posted that thing or said that thing that was so unsettling to you. And instead of just harboring that in your heart and viewing them differently from there on out, seeking to continually to still build relationship with that person. And maybe at some point, it's good to bring that up and to want to understand, man, what was behind that post? What was behind what you said? And lovingly listen to them. And even there will be instances where we kindly have to say, man, I don't see it that way, but I just wanted to hear from you. God's idea of peace truly redefines how we view all of our relationships from the closest people to us to the people we pass on the street. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, how is that even possible? What would that even look like? I don't think I can do that. None of that sounds easy. And I think over and over again, if, like I am hypothesizing, that peace requires sacrifice, yeah, biblical peace isn't easy. And part of that is because everything in us, apart from Jesus, opposes that peace. We long for easy. We long to run and stuff things under the rug. We long to go full steam ahead and just steamroll somebody. But we don't long for harmony. Thankfully, we don't do this in our own strength. Jesus doesn't just leave us to our own devices to figure out how to do this whole shalom, peace thing here on earth. In John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples that he is going to be gone one day. That after his death, resurrection, and ascension, he will physically no longer be with them, but he will send them a helper. He will send them a counselor who will be better. Verse 26 of John 14, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send into my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. God has gifted us who follow him, his own Holy Spirit, to lead us and to guide us into continual rhythms of peace with God. That's why we have conviction over sin. He will continue to lead us into peace and harmony with our Lord and with others. When I have relied on the Holy Spirit in really stressful, chaotic situations where there's broken relationship, when I've relied on him over myself, it is always gone, even if it hasn't gone great, always gone better and always led to way more redemptive and restorative things than if I had just tried to do it on my own. So brothers and sisters, can there be peace on earth? Can there be a peace that lasts forever? Praise to God for the arrival of peace that has been won for us by Jesus and for the promise of true shalom in the future as he destroys sin and death forever and his people are united in everlasting peace and harmony for eternity. And until that day, we long for, we pray for, and we actively participate in seeing King Jesus' peace on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord God, we are in desperate need of your peace. And I think part of that is still letting go of our ideas of what true peace is, 
and adopting and being saturated in your definition of peace. I pray for us that right now, all we can do is think about some of the broken situations and circumstances where we just wonder, can there actually be peace in that? I thank you, God, that you don't just give us like microwave peace, instant peace, but you, you work out in us and in the rest of creation a peace that will truly last. Would you help us in our weakness as people who abhor peace in so many ways to take hold of your truth, to trust you, Lord, to make you our foundation when it comes to seeing wholeness in broken circumstances and restoration to things that are broken. Would you help us to take on that identity as peacemakers, not only receiving your peace, but giving it, displaying it to the rest of the world? Would Christians stand out in this time where there is so much chaos? as people that seemingly have this peace that the rest of the world can't quantify. They can't list it or group it in A to Z. It goes beyond their comprehension. And would it all point back to you, Lord? Thank you for being the God who has won peace for us with you and that you will have a kingdom of peace where there will be no end. In your name, amen.